Disrupting Japan, Episode 33. Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. It's safe to say that almost all Disrupting Japan listeners know about 500 startups. And it's also safe to say that very soon, you'll be hearing a great deal from James Riney as well. Now, James is the head of the fledgling 500 Startups Japan, and has some optimistic but very well-founded ideas about how both Japanese startups and Japan in general is going to change in the next few years. We talk about his narrow escape from a life in investment banking to his startup and breakup with his co-founder to finding himself at the helm of 500 Startups Japan. We have a pretty frank discussion about the state of venture capital in Japan today, and it's not pretty. But we also talk about how many of these problems are starting to be resolved, and how James and 500 Startups plan on disrupting things here in Japan. We talk about how to increase M&A activity in Japan, why Japanese VCs are starting to lose out on the best deals, and why they're going to continue to lose out until something changes. And also, what Western VC's secret weapon really is. And I promise, it's not what you think. But I don't want to spoil any of the surprise. It's best if you hear it from James personally. So let's get right to the interview. I'm sitting here with James Rinney, the head of 500 Startups Japan. And thanks for coming in and sitting down and talking to us. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Now, before we get into talking about 500 startups, which is pretty much your life at the moment, talking about 500 startups. <laughs> That's right. It's my job. Let's talk about you, how you sort of got here. You grew up in Japan, didn't you? That's right. I grew up in Japan. Uh, I was here until I was about 12 years old. I went to ASIJ, American School in Japan. I left and I went to Florida. I pretty much forgot all my Japanese. I mean, you know, I didn't have any opportunities to speak Japanese. Somehow, you know, when you learn it as a kid, it's the core is still in there, right? Right. Uh, and so when I got into university, uh, and so I started studying again, and it came back to me pretty quickly because, as I said, it seems to be that, you know, when you learn as a kid, some yeah, fundamentals yeah. are there. I was not sure what I wanted to do, frankly, and so I decided to do J.P. Morgan just purely for a brand name, basically. I mean, you know, I, sure, had, no, I had no brand. idea what I wanted to do. So I interned in New York originally, uh, and then towards the end of the internship, they said they're going to give me an offer, uh, and so they gave me, you know, both offers, and I chose Tokyo. All right. Yeah. So when I graduated, I, you know, I, right away I went to Tokyo and I started at J.P. Morgan. Which, you know, I realized that. Investment banks weren't for me right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, I think a, lar- a large percentage of the people still working in investment banking realize that investment banking is not for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's very few that actually are lifers, right? That yeah. stay forever. Um, usually it's kind of like you do your time and then you go on to bigger and better things, you know, <laughs> or at least more tolerable things. <laughs> well, and your bigger and better thing, or perhaps a smaller and better thing, yeah. was uh, you were co-founder of Stories, JP. That's right. right? Yeah. I met my, uh, my co-founder at JP Morgan. Was, you were both from J.P. Morgan. We were both from okay. J.P. Morgan. Now, stories, it's kind of like medium, but it's more focused on fiction, right? No, actually, oh, it's really? the opposite. Okay. It's more focused on nonfiction. Right. <laughs> so it's your personal stories. Uh, and so the idea is that the Japanese blogging space, I mean, it's very, sure. um, pretty much like anonymous. Like, and we thought that uh, it would be interesting to have something that was more tied to your, your real name. So we, we require the Facebook login. The idea actually didn't start out as stories at JP. We didn't know really, really what we wanted to make. We would just, you know, hack away at things. And 
uh, I learned how to code front end, and he was doing the back end. Ah. You know, I just learned Photoshop. I mean, just, you know, just you have to, right? Yeah. Because uh, you just want to make things, and so we made a, a few things, and then we pitched at Startup Weekend actually. Just by chance, there were like three people from JP Morgan, so it was like three percent. They were like, "Oh, you're JP Morgan, you're JP Morgan." It's like you know, we discovered it there. I guess a lot of people real, were realizing was, investment banking yeah, is not for them. It's not what it used to be. Right? It doesn't pay as well. <laughs> when we pitched, uh, Wadasan from Incubate Fund approached us, and so over the course of the next six months or so, that's when we. Uh, so you start negotiating the, the actual investment. In retrospect, it probably was not good terms, but you know, I was so first naive, time out, that was right? first time out, that it was like, okay, yeah, someone's going to give me money, great. You know? <laughs> um, we started out with something that was like a video resume, and the idea was that there's uh, a lot of demand for bilingual talent, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't really know whether this person can actually speak. So let's say you're filtering resumes, you narrow that down to 30, but how do you th- narrow it down from 30 to 10, for example? Um, video resume could be that quick, efficient way to say, okay, this person's native. So, so was the pivot away from video resumes into storytelling, was that before the funding, after the funding? What, what uh, point did you realize actually, it's time to change? After the funding. The reason was because uh, we felt that it would be very hard to execute because recruiting, as you know, recruit, so let's say like MyNabi or Nikunabi yeah. included that feature into their platform. I mean, it's very hard to build a business based on a feature rather than something that's a little bit more disruptive, right? It, well, that um, is, that's a really interesting point. In fact, I think a lot of the startups coming out of San Francisco today, there are a tremendous number of kind of feature startups. Yeah. You know, companies yeah. that are obviously focused on like, we're going to get acquired yeah. because this cannot survive as a standalone product. Exactly. But you're right, you don't see that in Japan. It might just be the, the M&A is not as active here. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, it's very doubtful that Recruit would acquire rather than build out in-house. Yeah. Right? So anyway, so we were thinking, okay, what, what can we make that even if a big company does it, it's not going to matter? Uh, and so one thing that we thought was missing was a, was a LinkedIn for Japan. As you know, LinkedIn still hasn't picked up in Japan. No. We were thinking, okay, well, what is something that's very, very core to Japanese culture? And that's the, the exchange of business cards. What we started out, it was supposed to be like, story, which is the story that doesn't fit on your business card. And so we so were still business focused. It was business focused, but the idea was that you would have your URL there, and you on there you you would just write your stories. Like you know, there was this one sales goal that I had to make, and you know, and some some yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Some, but you know, people blog and talk about that stuff all sure. the time. So and, um, so we thought that if it was, it was framed in a different way, you can get the same data. But it's, you know, it's not seen as like blasphemous or you're trying to change your job or anything like that. Yeah, it's a more social network storytelling. <laughs> yeah. so, so how did that yeah, so, play out? Um, so we went into private beta with that. But what we realized was that uh, all these other features, like we basically built a LinkedIn plus blogging, <laughs> which LinkedIn has, by the way. <laughs> what we found was that people were just using the story feature and not really filling out their other details. And so, right. so the, goal, the goal of getting that data was pretty much, you know, it, it, we didn't accomplish it. So eventually we just said, okay, why don't we just scrap everything and just go with the story writing well, feature. Know, if, if your customers are telling you what, you, what they like about your product, it's exactly. good to listen to them. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so that's what we went with. Uh, we changed the name. We just said, okay, it's going to be stories.jp. We, we actually were able to get uh, to you know, 100,000 uniques pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And so it seemed like it was going pretty far, but well, yeah. some of the some of the bloggers got publishing deals from that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it had quite a 
social impact. Um, and so the biggest one that came out is uh, the Bidi Gaudu story, right? The girl that was not necessarily the best student in high school, but she worked hard and she got into KO, which is you know, one of the best universities here. So that you know was like a big hit. I mean, number one bestseller in, uh, in, on Amazon in Japan, uh, and it went on to become a movie. Uh, and so it grossed um, about $23 million at the box office. Which did, did Story JP make any money off of that? Uh, I cannot disclose. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Yeah. But that stuff is like gaming, right? It's, it's, it's a hits-driven business. And mm-hmm. so it's very hard to build a stable business out of that. So there came a point where we were thinking, because we need to think of something that's a little bit more sustainable. Uh, and between the founders, we just didn't see eye to eye. I mean, one core thing was that I wanted to build something that a little bit, a little bit more of a global impact. Mm-hmm. And my co-founders are purely Japanese. My investors were Japanese, and so I just didn't see how like this was the team to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Fortunately, I was still on good terms with my VC, uh, which is Incubate Fund, and one of the LPs in Incubate Fund is uh, is DNA. Right around that time, DNA was uh, was launching their own you know, venture arm. And so that's basically when I joined. I joined right at the inception. Now, Stories JP is still a, an ongoing concern, right? It's still, it's still operating running. and still... Yeah. Okay, and it cool. still brings in, you know, pretty good traffic. It's, well, content is hard. Content is hard, exactly. exactly. Okay. So when you moved from being a startup to a VC, that's a big change. Do you find uh, being on the VC side of the table more suitable? Do you like it better? Do you miss getting your hands dirty in the fray of the startups? Okay, so as an entrepreneur, you get... All of the stress and all of the glory. Mm-hmm. When you're a VC, all of the stress and all the glory is in a portfolio and it's, it's you know, diversified. So you don't get as much glory. You don't get as much stress. Right. So, you know, so it's a trade-off, right? Okay, what I miss about running a startup is that when you're a VC, uh, you don't really call the shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can give as much advice, advice as you want. At the end of the day, it's the entrepreneur's company. And so you just have to dish out advice when it's welcomed, and then you just kind of, you know, got to let him be. That is a concern. I mean, especially for someone like me that's a little bit more to the point and, you know, very, um, I can be abrasive sometimes. Now, this is one thing I've noticed in Japan, one of the biggest difference between the relationship between VCs and the founders. A lot of VCs in Japan expect the founders to take their advice. Yeah. And a lot of the founders, because of this hierarchical relationship, Yeah almost view their their investors as not exactly their boss yeah but but someone who they almost have to listen to yeah Um, yeah that's uh that's very true and that's something that you know we would like to disrupt yeah lack of a better word but we want to disrupt that in japan because uh, most of the vcs here have no entrepreneurial experience uh they're mostly from finance backgrounds yeah uh they've never launched a product on their own uh, if they have, it's been within a large organization. They seriously lack not only experience, but just empathy for entrepreneurs because um, yeah. they've never been under those really harsh conditions. So there is sort of this like power dynamic where there's, in some sense, like a lack of respect for entrepreneurs, especially in the days when they're not necessarily doing so well. Um, and that's pretty key, right? I mean, when you have an investor, especially if it's your main investor, you want that person to be with you through thick and thin. Right. Um, you know, I've had first-hand experience where I didn't feel that was the case. I, at Incubate Fund, yes, but I had one other investor who seemed like when things were great, he was my best friend. When things were not so great, I mean, you'd never hear from him, you know? Yeah, I've, uh, I've had that experience myself. Yeah, yeah and, and so you don't really want fair-weather fans, and so that's another thing. 
You're right. I think that that tends to be the case where um, the power dynamic is very uneven in Japan. Is that changing? Are are VCs trying to have more empathy? Are do they even recognize this as a problem? Okay. The reason that Silicon Valley is what it is today is because it has this culture of giving back. Yeah.、Uh, and that started, you know, long time ago. So people like to compare Tokyo to Silicon Valley, and that's fine. But They compare it based on what it is now, and they don't. They don't necessarily consider the fact that it's taken so long to build that up. Yeah. And it's and it's been decades of this sort of giving back attitude. Whereas in Japan, the entrepreneurs that actually made it don't necessarily give back. In in Silicon Valley, it's very common for established entrepreneurs to actually become、uh, VCs. Whereas here, it's almost like as long as you didn't make any serious mistakes, you get to become a VC. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <Yes. laughs> Right, I mean, right, and, and risk aversion is one of the things that you really want in a VC, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that that's a serious problem as to why、uh, some of the VCs in Japan are, are the way they are. It is a serious problem. So right now we've seen we're we're starting to see angels, you know, successful entrepreneurs who have been successful who are are making small investments trying、yeah. to mentor the next generation. Do you think that is going to bubble up into the VC community, or do you、yeah. think they're pretty set in their ways? First of all, I hope so. What I will say though is that、uh, the VC community in Japan is、uh, mostly corporate investors, right? Right.、Uh, and you may, you may have seen my TechCrunch、yeah. article about that. But、uh, in general, I mean, the best scenario would be that these established entrepreneurs would also join independent VC firms, so that you can bring a little bit more of an entrepreneurial flair to to those firms. Um, and it's okay even if they failed. You know, you know. In my、yeah. case, I wouldn't necessarily say that I failed, but I definitely wasn't like a mega success. But I've noticed that at least making that transition to VC, at least I can have some sort of empathy or understanding of what they're going through. I kind of get it. Yeah.、Uh, and I've noticed that entrepreneurs understand that I get it. Do the corporate VCs recognize this as a problem? Do they recognize the fact they need this entrepreneurial experience, or they haven't? Had that、uh, awakening yet? Well, I think it's gonna take another VC to disrupt them <laughs> and, and create that awakening. You know, good morning. So they'll they'll realize it's a problem when they start losing deal flow. Exactly.、No? Exactly. And then you know, I'm confident that'll happen pretty soon. <laughs> okay.、Yeah. <laughs> That's something. That is something to look forward to. Yeah. So 500 startups. You guys are planning to disrupt Japan. From the VC side, what is the the basic strategy? Are you seed only? Are you looking to help fill in some of the Series A crunch?、Um, well, seed to Series A. Okay.、Uh, and you know, we a lot of people have asked us like, are we really going to do 500 startups in this fund? You know, it's、um, just a name. It's just a name. But the general idea is that portfolio diversification at the seed level. But we invest 50% on first checks, and then the remaining 50% is follow-on for the, the the best performing deals. Okay. Yeah. At DNA, you are focused mostly. On startups outside of Japan, a lot of some in Southeast Asia、yes. and in the U.S. and 500 startups. Japan is exclusively Japan. Yes, exclusively Japan. Do you think you'll be able to find the same number and quality of startups here in Japan、yeah. with a smaller market as you were able to when you were looking globally? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. First of all,、uh, I think that in Japan there are very good startups, and there are also、uh, very smart people that can potentially start a startup in the future, right? So they, it already exists, and I think the number of, of high-quality startups is increasing. You know, I'm not sure if you read my blog post about joining 500 startups, but I did.、Uh, you know, I talk about how the people that are just coming into the workforce now. 
they never had this sort of image of a stable big Japanese company. And yeah. you know, they're growing up in the, the last decade. Um, they're seeing you know big companies like Sharp. You're doing massive layoffs, and so. Uh, so the whole risk reward equation has changed. Yeah, it doesn't for them. doesn't make sense, right? And that's that's you know definitely from your blog post that I took. I thought that <laughs> okay. was, no, I, no, I thought that was exactly. I've, well I've stolen plenty from you as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, but it's it's the people that live in Japan but also have a global perspective are just like screaming until their voice goes out about you know similar problems. But you know, if you look at examples between the number of founders from like Kyoto University or Tokyo University, it's significantly increased uh, mm. in recent years. So I actually do think that you're starting to see that effect. But what is going to uh, serve as a catalyst for that exits, right? Because yep. in order for the ecosystem to work, you have to have the exits. In one year, generally, there's like a hundred IPOs, right? Um, but the M and A is really where you know the system gets working Absolutely. because the best companies might go on to IPO at least in the U.S. And I know in Japan it's different because IPO is like a Series B here. Um, <laughs> but you know there's still very good companies that are maybe cannot be sustainable on their own, but they would be you know worthy acquisition targets. Well, this actually um, brings us back to what you were saying back. At, there has been this culture in Japan for. Well, probably since the war, quite frankly, companies don't do M and A. They've been focused on maximizing the use of their current employees. So, if they see a product they like, they'll set an internal team on copying it, yeah, developing it, yeah, yeah. And and that rarely goes well. Yes, it rarely does. Yeah. Is that starting to change? Because that changing yeah. that culture is what will lead to a boom in yeah. M and A's. Yeah. So the new big comp- big tech companies like DNA or Mixi, for example they are recognizing that and they are actually doing the bulk of the acquisitions, right? They're, they're um, pretty acquisitive. They are, they are. The analogy I like to make is that when you start a, a new business inside of a large organization that's public, for example, because uh, big companies have to an- answer to the shareholders, they're not necessarily looking at long-term, they're looking very, very short-term. Next quarter, yeah. Um, and if you start one in a large organization, you only have one investor. If that one investor says no, you're screwed, hmm. right? Whereas yeah. if you start it you know, independently, you have many investors to give you a chance. And so the longevity, you can think much more long-term. The advantage of doing it outside of a company is just so, so strong. It is. Well, you get to move quickly. Uh, and I, but I do think the investor part is quite important because, yeah. you know, and I've seen examples, which I won't name specifically, where it's like, this could have been big, but you shut it down in eight months. Yeah, you know? doesn't it, this is an ambitious thing, and you had to give it more time to well, and sprout. That's the funny thing is, overseas, particularly in America, we view Japanese corporations as having a really long-term view, and you know, willing to endure a few bad quarters for long term. But they're really not. No, they're, they're no, managed quarter to quarter just like everyone else. That's not the case, no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was that way in the 60s, but yeah. not anymore. Yeah, the new uh, large companies are doing acquisitions. Uh, however, I think that we need more. And that's, that's where I think 500 startups can, can really help. In general, the Japanese startup ecosystem doesn't have a lot of global visibility mm. uh, from a foreign investor's perspective. It's like, okay, I know Japan's the third largest economy in the world, but I don't know anything about the market because I can't read any of the information. It's a very opaque market. It's an opaque market. Really and some is. stuff is just not even written in, in the first place, right? Just by us having uh, invested in a company, it's a globally recognized brand. And so it's more likely to be covered by foreign media. 
Um, so I think that's going to be build more optics into the the ecosystem here. All right. Um, and so what that means is more pe more potential acquirers are going to be looking at the market. Uh, more potential foreign investors are going to be looking at the market. Well, I think. It, well, another thing is once if foreign companies start acquiring Japanese companies, I think that'll spur. This is exactly Japanese what I was companies. getting to. Yeah. 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 So so Japanese companies tend to be uh, conservative, and I think. There is a bit of herd mentality. I mean, of course, it's human nature to have herd mentality, but I think it's definitely more pronounced in Japan. Oh yeah, half of the Japanese economy is in is in cash on balance sheets and companies, right? <laughs> and so they they need to do something anyway because they're being evaluated based on the the shame index. So their their capital efficiency is what they're being measured on. Right now, they're doing share buybacks, but that's is a short term measure. The long term measure is to actually use that cash for. For new businesses. Well, it sounds like the pieces are in place. The pieces are in place. So as long as we can get uh, foreign acquirers to set the example, I think that the domestic large corporates that have all this cash piled up are going to feel like, okay, we have to do something too. Right. Yeah. So the pieces are in place. Are there any specific industries or types of startups that you think Japan is either very strong in now or that they could be strong in in the next few years? I mean, the obvious answer is is hardware based. Things. Traditionally, so, it, traditionally it has been. It has been. And um, for hardware to be an interesting business, you have to build some sort of interesting software layer as well, right? To to build it into a business, because in a lot of ways, hardware is kind of commoditized. So we're looking at like an Internet of Things type place. It could be like an Internet of Things, but the the best example I like for that is like Dropcam. So Dropcam is just a, it's just a camera, right? But you can do all sorts of interesting things. Like for example, you just access it from your smartphone, and then uh, they they monetize by making you pay if you want to see like you know historical video, like you know oh. in the past. I don't know what the timeline is, but for example, if you want to access something six months b beforehand, uh, you can uh, you can so you pay, pay for you pay monthly. Yeah, you pay for oh, our game. Right. So it's like right. cloud storage. That's basically it. So the business is not the cameras itself, but it's the cloud storage. Uh, and then they have other things like they can recognize things based on the the you know what's in the video like your it, whether so, like your dog walks by or whether there's actually a burglar coming in you know things like that and so the software part is the interesting part but the it's the hardware is is important because that uh, multiplies what you can do with the software mm. so right now there's sort of a shift where creating hardware companies uh, has become a lot easier right so. There was a shift where software all of a sudden became very easy to build, or at least cheap to build. Yeah. There's a similar thing happening in the hardware space where uh, you have streamlined manufacturing processes, right, right. 3D printing, sensors are cheaper, you know, all sorts of things. So uh, it's a lot easier to get that sort of iteration that was important in software too, right? Uh, and then you have Kickstarter, for example, that can get you off the ground and build validation so that investors can actually uh, feel like they're comfortable that mm -hmm. um, they can put this much capital into a hardware uh, capital-intensive company. Anyway, so... I think that uh, there's a lot of promise for that. I also think that because these hardware companies are doing layoffs and also not necessarily building the most innovative products, there's probably a lot of really frustrated engineers that want to do something. Well, th this is one thing I've noticed. I think that Japan does have an advantage in this space in that a lot of the hardware startups in the U.S. are smart guys in their 20s. A lot of the hardware startups in Japan are, okay, they'll have a couple of smart guys in their 20s, but they'll also have someone who's been at Sharp or Sony for yep. the last 30 years yep. and understands quality assurance and outsourcing. And it's, it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, that's for sure. So, yeah, we're excited. I mean, you know, our general approach is that we just want to meet a lot of smart, ambitious entrepreneurs. So we try not to focus too much on different sectors, but 
of course, we each have our biases. And So one of the things 500 Startups brings is that access to the, the global market and the global exposure. And every startup founder in Japan is doing lip service to gl- going global. Mm-hmm. Do you think most Japanese startups are really ready to go global? Do, do you see them taking the necessary steps to address a global audience? Or do you think Japanese startups are still too focused on the domestic market right now? There's a few components to answer that question. So the first component is when you start a company in Japan, you have to decide from the beginning, is it going to be an English-speaking company or is it going to be a Japanese-speaking company? Mm. And in the long term, uh, it's you might have more growing pains if you start as an English-speaking company, but once you get over that, it's a lot easier to go global uh, right. because you have global in your core. It's English is a global language, uh, and so it's a lot easier, right? Um, but on the other hand, uh, in the early days when you need to move quickly and you just need talent, it's pretty hard to find bilingual staff. And not only that, but they're more expensive. Yeah. One of the barriers for some of these Japanese startups that want to go global is that they're not global from the core. And so what what ends up happening, you go to some of these, like, you know, I won't name names, but you go to the San Francisco office of this big startup, or at least big for Japanese standards, uh, and everyone's Japanese there. You know? Oh, you mean San Francisco office of a Japanese startup? Of a Japanese firm. And everyone's Japanese, and and you know you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean you need yeah. to hire a local executive that understands uh, the market, has built relationships, you know, yeah. especially if it's sales oriented. You know, it just just blows my mind that they don't have that sort of common sense, and they choose to go with someone that's who speaks Japanese, uh, or, or you know, someone that's like they feel like they could go drinking with this person. You know, it's just although you know I I've done a lot of market entries for foreign companies into Japan. That problem it, is universal. Yeah, it's universal. It's <laughs> universal. So I mentioned that at Japan Night when I was speaking there. That is universal. So it happens both ways. That's yeah. true. Yeah. But do you find that Japanese startups are aware of the foreign competition? So they probably wouldn't. Uh, they would do like maybe a simple Google search. That And also there's no one in the founding team that has that capability. Uh, and that's mm. another problem. One thing that is kind of going to be a challenge for us is that we want to get bilingual people to uh, see that they have such an advantage over the competition locally because they have all this extra information available to them. There's sort of this arbitrage opportunity where not only you could do time machine type of models where it's like a similar model from somewhere else and bring it to Japan, but you get updates on what's going on in a global perspective in real time. That's another very disruptive thought because traditionally most Japanese who speak English and are working for a large corporation keep that fact to themselves. Yeah. Yeah, they um, do. They do. Um, because either they'll be viewed interest. as somehow distrusted or more likely they'll get a lot of translation work shoved at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, the other thing is that bilingual talent in Japan, you know, we have it pretty easy. I mean, mm. no matter what we do, someone's going to hire us because we're in, we're in high demand. Right. And so you're so complacent that you just don't feel like you want to push yourself anymore. No matter what I do, I'm going to be working at this brand name company and have a pretty good salary. Japan's a, just a nice place to live. Why would I, you know, dive into a startup? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, having a fallback is is dangerous. It's it is dangerous. It's definitely a two-edged sword. So the amount of capital, the amount of investment capital in Japan, and the number of investable companies in Japan is is much smaller than it is in the U.S. Do you think that 
it's a demand side problem that there, there's not enough investors deploying capital or do you think it's a supply side problem where there's just not enough creative entrepreneurs building something worthwhile and willing to take a risk? Um, it's a little bit of both. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. It is kind of a chicken and egg problem, a chicken and egg problem, excuse me. The companies that are good, if venture funding in Japan or including angel investment is like 1.2 billion, you can't expect them to compete with U.S. where it's 75 billion. Right. You don't. You just like undercapitalize. That's just fundamentally, you know, not able to compete. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's one thing. The other thing is that unicorn is a popular term, right? Mm. Companies here tend to go public very, very early, and so, like I said, it's this, this the Series B, and so if they go, they go public, they immediately have to answer to shareholders, and right, it's right. very expensive, and they have to think short term. And so you're kind of pressured to become profitable right away. Whereas, um, you know, as long as your economics make sense, you should be focusing on, on growth so that, you know, as long as at some point you can turn on a switch and say, okay, we're going to be profitable now. Yeah. U.S. companies used to go public a lot earlier than yeah. they do now. Yeah, and I'll I explain mean... to you why that's the case. Okay. Uh, so, you know, let's say around like 2002, 2003, when was Sarbanes-Oxley enacted? Around then. Uh, around then, yeah. yeah. So uh, around then, the average age uh, of a company that goes public was about three years. Really? Um, yeah. Huh. Um, but then you had Sarbanes-Oxley, and all of a sudden, it became such a pain in the ass to go public. So now it's like 12 years or 13 years. I mean, it's like a significant... Really? Think about the life of a venture fund is 10 years. It's insane, right? <laughs> so it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Is it balanced? There's enough financing to, to finance the worthwhile companies. There's enough worthwhile companies to, to meet the demand? Yeah. Going back to the chicken and the egg thing... Yeah. Uh, the, the good companies are undercapitalized, so inevitably their valuations don't become as high as you'd like. And so that affects upside for smart people to start companies, right? Right, and right. And so the exit values are much lower. However, we think that you know, if we can increase the number of exits, we can also, that drives returns to not only investors but entrepreneurs. And so suddenly you're going to have these you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings that have like millions of dollars you know, and driving on a Ferrari, for example. And I think that's going to, you know, as long as the the drive to do something new is genuine and it's not, not just, just some MBA that wants that's just chasing what's new and hot, you know, I think that's going to make people feel like they have a fighting chance. You know, the upside is going to be much higher if they actually started a company. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like things are reasonably well balanced now. There's enough uh, investors to invest in the quality startups, there's enough new startups to satisfy investor demand, and it sounds like things are, the pieces are in place for it to just grow organically from here. Yeah, I think the timing feels right, which is exactly why, you know, we're launching this fund. Okay, that's great. I'm looking forward to seeing 500 startups disrupt Japan this way. You mentioned before about Japan being a very opaque market. Yeah. Observers overseas have very little visibility into it. What do you think is the biggest misconception that Westerners have about Japan and about the Japanese startup ecosystem? Uh, I don't think it's a misconception. Uh, I think it's more of no perception. There's they just so, don't know? They just don't know. There's oh, just not enough visibility here that it's not even on their radar. Okay, well, hopefully you guys are going to be changing that. That's our hope. Yeah. And, and sooner rather than later. Yep. Okay, great. Let me ask you, so if I gave you a magic wand and said you could change one thing about Japanese society anything at all, to make it better for startups and entrepreneurs here, what would you change? Okay, so I have two, but since you've already mentioned the failure 
thing before about the acceptance of failure in Japan. What I'm going to add is it just seems like in the US,、uh, there is more of an acceptance towards breaking down the old and building the new. Okay.、Uh, whereas in Japan, you know, as you know, some of the oldest companies in the world, most of them are Japanese, right? And so you have these companies that have been around for hundreds of years. And so there, there's sort of this、um, respect for the establishment and what's already you know, big, don't change it. It seems to be working. What's broke, don't fix it. So people、um, need to, to kind of question the way things are more? Or? So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think in the US, people are perfectly fine with、uh, you know, forgetting about that old dinosaur and just like building it from the ground up. You know, let's build it from zero to one. I think that mentality needs to change in Japan where they're rooting for the underdog because it's a better way of doing things. That is really interesting. And I, I think that that is a big difference between startups here in Japan and in San Francisco.、Yeah. Um, in San Francisco, Everyone's talking about taking down Microsoft or IBM. And in Japan, it's still pretty rare、yep. when, when someone says, Yeah, Fujitsu, no,、nah, they're going to be out of business in 20 years.、So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's true, though. I mean,、uh, that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think people need to be more confident about the fact that these big companies do move slowly and there is a chance to fight these guys、yeah. and be perfectly okay with that. I mean, be okay with、uh, a new beginning. Do you see the seeds of that now? Do you see some of that starting in Japan? I do. I mean, like I said, I mean, think that there are、uh, certain people that have that ambition and are fighting those people that are pushing them down, right? It's like the nail that sticks out gets hammered down.、Um, they're fighting the hammers. Excellent.、Yeah. And hopefully we'll be seeing more of them. Yeah, I hope so.、Yeah. Hey, listen, thanks for sitting down with me despite technical difficulties. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> and、uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. And we're back. I think James' point about the importance of empathy is a great one. And I wish we had more time to really do it justice during the interview. It's a shame, but in business and in finance in particular, empathy is often seen as a sign of, well, weakness, really. But it isn't. In VC investing, it's a definite strategic advantage. You see, despite the portrayals in the media, Growing a company is really difficult and emotionally draining. A VC who is partners who have been through that process, who understands what the founders are going through on the inside and can help them get through it, are not just being nice guys. They will have a far more profitable portfolio and they'll see much higher returns. Huh. I bet that my friends from back in the hedge fund days would laugh at me. For asserting that empathy is a secret to investment returns, but it is. I think James nailed that one. I came away from our discussion in a very optimistic mood. The pieces are in place to see an increased amount of MA and venture investment, and it seems that James has a plan for kicking off a virtuous cycle of increasing quality of startups and availability of capital. Over the next few years, I'm looking forward to seeing James and 500 startups disrupting Japan. If you've got an experience with Japanese VCs that you want to share, come on by disruptingjapan.com slash show 033 and tell us about it. Or drop by the Disrupting Japan Facebook page and we'd love to hear from you. When you drop by the site, you'll see the links and sites that James and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And if you get the chance, please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can support the show and help us get the word out. 
But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.